My name is Michael Delgado, and I'm on special assignment for Art Report today. My guest tonight is the well-known author and cultural writer Lawrence Wessler. Wren, as his friends call him, was a staff writer for The New Yorker for 20 years and has won the prestigious George Polk Award in journalism twice. His books of political reportage include The Passion of Poland, about the Solidarity Revolution, and A Miracle, A Universe, Settling Accounts with Torturers. His Passions and Wonders series currently comprises Seeing is Forgetting the Name of the Thing One Sees, a life of contemporary artist Robert Irwin, David Hockney's Camera Works, Mr. Wilson's Cabinet of Wonder, and Everything That Rises, a book of convergences. Mr. Wilson's Cabinet was shortlisted for both the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Critics Circle Award, and Everything That Rises received the 2007 National Book Critics Circle Award for criticism. I was thrilled that he graciously found time to chat over the phone from his home in New York. After reviewing his impressive body of work in anticipation of our call, it occurred to me that the subjects of his stories might in fact have a common thread. To my mind, it seemed that while tackling weighty issues with a very light hand, Wessler is focused on outsiders, who are either having trouble getting recognized for their do-it-yourself approach to problems, or getting into trouble for that very same impulse. No, I, I think that's that's kind of right. Um, I mean, phrase it a different way, I like to deal with weighty issues, but I don't like to deal with them head on. Mm-hmm. And I like to find ways of coming at them from the side. And so I find people who are tangentially, sometimes, uh, you know, fiercely tangentially or adamantly tangentially uh, involved, I mean, for example, I wanted to, to write about museums and, and was able to do it through the Museum of Jurassic Technology, which in those right. days was largely unknown and completely odd, no matter what. Uh, but it, but there's, I, I like the, the stories that become trapdoors. Um, they're all, all, most of my pieces, uh, are, are just to continue a few other examples. When I did the Robert Irwin book, it was a way of dealing with a whole history of, of a trajectory of American art from figurative through abstract expressionist on down through, you know, uh, color field into minimalist, uh, uh, into pure perceptual art and so forth. Um, uh, but without having to do like a straightforward history. And, uh, and that was Irwin. And, and, and likewise, when I did Boggs, uh, I wanted to deal with that. Boggs was right after the, financial crash of 1987 that was a few financial crashes back and it was a way of dealing with the mystery of money by dealing with an artist who drew money and spent his drawings and as a result got into all kinds of crazy trouble Um, so all of those are similar kinds of stories i asked ren about the genesis of a project was he enamored with a topic and searched for characters to populate a narrative it's rather the other way around. I mean, I have kind of wide-ranging interests and keep up with, you know, I mean, there's several things I'd, I'd like to write about, and I may not even be aware that I specifically want to write about a particular topic, but I'm keeping generally interested. And then a story comes along. I, because of my general interest, I begin to hear about things, and, and mm. I say, oh, wait, that would work. Um when I was at, uh, I went to Santa Cruz 
um, UC Santa Cruz and mm-hmm. specifically to Cal College. This was back in the very late 60s, early 70s. And um, in those days, uh, it was funny, uh, Cal, it was very much a college-based campus. So it, uh, there were other people going to other colleges there, but uh, my background is very much Cal. Uh, and in fact, um, my graduating class in 74 had 200 students from that college, mm. and three of them would become New Yorker writers. Mm. So, yeah. you some idea. Uh, okay. Bill Finnegan, William yeah. Finnegan, and, and Noel Oxenhander also were in that class. But anyway, the point is that, that, um, what was interesting about that college <laughs> was that, um, the founding provost, Paige Smith, was anti-positivism in every field. So we had an incredibly odd faculty because positivism was the dominant strain in all American academia in those days. So we had a psychology department in which it was impossible to take classes in in uh, psychological tests or uh, behaviorism or any of that stuff. Alone in America, our psychology department was Freudian which was, like, really weird. Uh, our philosophy department had no classes in logic or Anglo-American, you know, philosophy. It was all continental, and it was mainly existential and phenomenological. You know, our our um, our politics department was mainly political theory, just amazing theorists, Sheldon Wool and people like that, but, uh, but no classes in how a bill becomes a law or in polling and so forth, and... Right. When my grandmother was once asked what I was studying, uh, her answer was nothing that will bring him any good. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, I was a different major every semester and, and got a very, very good generalist education. And, and actually, uh, based on that thing I told you about three out of 200 became New Yorker writers, it was obviously, um, I think what it was really, really good at teaching uh, are really the only two things you need to, to learn in, co- in, in college, which are, um, how to ask a question, how to frame a question, mm. and how to make it so that the rest of your life is a college education. Uh, you know, I mean, it's just that you can just continue be, to be curious and so forth in that way. And, and, uh, I was very lucky in that regard. Ren just mentioned Bill Finnegan, another of my favorite writers. Growing up on the beaches of Southern California, Finnegan's eloquence on the matters of surf have always resonated with me. Oh, I used to see him, you know, taking his uh, uh, playing hooky and taking the surfboard down the hill. <laughs> and uh, and uh, and by the way, I think that his and my styles of writing are not that uh, different. Or I could almost say there's a Cal College school of of uh, of reportage, which is very much involved in just throwing yourself into an odd situation, um, which you may not have any expertise in at all, and trying to figure out what on earth the question is that might open this up. And uh, and uh, and and I think, by the way, that his Barbarian Days, his book on um, surfing, is really a book about the formation of a, a reporter. You know, the, 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 what it's like to get, be in the soup, what it's like to be at ground level or at surf level where you can't see over the waves 
and ha- and yet they're coming at you, and you have to make decisions about which one you're going to take, uh, and and what the lay of the land is, and so forth. Uh, that's completely what happens when he goes to Mozambique or or mm-hmm. you know uh, difficult neighborhoods in New Haven or Lancaster or things like that. I mean, uh, what it's like to to get your bearings and and to part- and have the reader participate in what it's like to get your bearings. I confess to Ren that I'd always assumed that because he was writing for the New Yorker that, well, he was just another East Coast intellectual. But when I learned that he, in fact, grew up here, I went back and took a second look and seemed to notice a lyricism that I would attribute to a West Coast style. You're more Tupac than Biggie, is what I would say. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. I, I, I'd, I'd say... I mean, it's very funny when when I was interviewing Bob Irwin years and years and years ago. One of his first questions to me was, "What high school did you go to?" And I said, "Birmingham High in the Valley." And and he said, "Yeah, I was Dorsey." And we both agreed that any two people from L.A. from that generation—it's not so much the case now with all the private schools—but from that generation uh, or you know before that, if you asked, came from L.A., if you were in Europe talking to somebody, you said, "So which high school did you go to?" Whatever you were told, you would know everything about the person. Wren's high school world was quite unique, and it would resurface in a snarl with Tina Brown, perhaps the New Yorker's most notorious editor, who, among other innovations, introduced color and photographs into the magazine. And when Tina Brown took over the New Yorker, she came to me one day and said, oh, we, we used to have unbelievable fights, she and I, uh, just raging uh, the kind of thing that when you slam that I, when I came out of her office, people would be leaning out of their car, of their, uh, carols and saying, Jesus, what was that? <laughs> but anyway, so one day she, uh, fairly early on, she calls me into the office and she says, uh, she says, Ren, uh, I'm going to be doing an all California issue. And I've already secured an exclusive interview with David Geffen. And I said, geez, Tina, how do you do it? You know, and she looked at me and she said, you know, stop being sarcastic. And, and the, she said, but I know you come from California, so you have to do one. <sighs> and I, and I said, okay. She said, so what do you want to do? And I said, well, I actually have a good story. And she said, what's that? She said, I went to Birmingham High School. I grew up in the Valley. I went to Birmingham High School in Van Nuys. And I said, the class I, uh, I entered in September 66 and graduated in June 69. But the class that graduated just before I entered, the class that graduated in June 66, the student body vice president was Michael Ovitz. And she said, no. And I said, yeah. (laughs) And then she said, I said, the student body, the head cheerleader was Sally Fields. And she said, no. And I said, yep. And I said, the head yell leader, the male cheerleader, was Michael Milliken. <laughs> and she said, no. And I said, yes. She says, and I said, I want to write a piece about the student body president of that class. The guy who Michael Ovitz, you know, clawing his way to the top, was only able to be vice president. This guy was the president on top of everything. <laughs> and she said, whoo, whoo. And I said, Bruce Kantz. And she said, who? And I said, he's a hippie farmer. He lives on a hill in Santa Cruz. 
He has a little vineyard. He has a goat farm. He is a completely successful human being. He has never had to look at his face in the mirror in disgust or in horror a single time his entire life. He's lived a completely successful life. And she just looked at me with just, you know, eviscerating disgust. And she said, get out of here. Because she knew, I mean, she understood that I was attacking everything she believed in, you know. And and I walked down to my office and the phone rang and she said, you still have to do one. Birmingham High in the time of Wren was a sports powerhouse, particularly in football. And the school erected massive stadium lights that would compete with the nearby Van Nuys Airport. Wren relates an amusing anecdote on just how the school came to pay for that megawatt infrastructure. The spring of 67, they did a uh, a concert uh, to raise money for the lights. And they got went up to San Francisco and they got all these San Francisco groups that within 10 minutes were going to be extremely famous. <laughs> but in those days, they hadn't been known really in, in, in L.A. yet. And so we at, at our, in the stadium... There was a concert with The Doors, The Jefferson Airplane, The Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, (laughs) all these people who were like literally five minutes minutes away from the the summer of love and the summer of 67. But but, uh, anyway, so I I remember saying to somebody, yeah, that guy's a pretty good singer on that that Doors group. That guy seems like a pretty good singer. (laughs) On a more serious note, Wren's book, Seeing is Forgetting the Name of the Thing One Sees, about Robert Irwin, the godfather of the light and space movement, has been heralded as one of the finest books on art because of its lucid exploration into both Irwin's fascinating body of work, but also its insights on the entirety of Western art history. If you've not read it, I highly recommend it. Of particular note is the way in which Wren describes the essence of Irwin's reductivist work and its import. Basically, he was dismantling. Uh, he got rid of, you know, gesture. He got rid of uh, identifiable figure. He got rid of frame. He got rid of uh, of uh, doing things in the gallery at all. You know, he was constantly kind of uh, delaminating from all the things you assume must be part of an art object until there wasn't any object at all, and he'd gotten down to point zero, as he said it were. Um, and he was had basically dismantled his entire thing, but it, it, it in what was a kind of lunk-headed phenomenological reduction. He had no academic training in any case, uh, but he'd gotten to this point zero. That point zero part, I think there's a story of how uh, – a fun story of him at the Venice Biennale. And yeah, and right around that point, uh, he, he – uh, wanted, he basically was invited to be, uh, part of the American show at the Venice Biennale and he just found a, a dappled lawn with a tree above it and he took a, uh, piece of string and, and stretched it into a square on the ground and kind of, you know, however he nailed it down. And as far as he was concerned, the way that light struck that square was everything that you needed to have for an art object. And in fact, the next step was just to get rid of the string. I asked specifically about one chapter, cleverly titled When Fountainheads Collide, in which Wren covers the tumultuous relationship between Irwin and the Starkitect 
Richard Meyer, over Irwin's concept for the garden at the magnificent Getty Museum in L.A. Irwin's garden is a spectacular artwork, and it must not be considered landscape architecture or design. The piece literally flowers in such a way that it can only be appreciated over several visits, when, for example, the inner ring blooms, and then within weeks, the next adjacent ring blooms. The stream that runs into a waterfall is tuned, such that the water over particular stones creates one sound in one area and a subtly different sound in another. Irwin's design was the polar opposite of Meyer's vision, and it would lead to a clash of titans. I'll let Wren explain. Richard Meyer, he was absolutely Aristotelian. He was doing everything straight lines and straight lines and, and circular curves, and it was absolutely that idea for the garden, for what is now the Robert Irwin Garden, was a series of marble, uh, flat, kind of almost fascist, uh, terraces and eventually a, a colonnade of, of, uh, square, uh, uh, plinths with, you know, and going across and, but it was just incredibly bright and there were no, there was no vegetation at all and it was just, mm-hmm. uh, and, and the, uh, the, uh, board was having second thoughts and they were trying to get him, they were throwing landscape architects at him. Uh, to try and, you know, maybe that'll help, but he was just chewing them up and spitting them out. And so around that time, Irwin had just gotten his, his MacArthur, and they figured, okay, let's throw Irwin at him. And the two of them proceeded to have this rather remarkable battle, uh, and which is the occasion for what is basically a comic piece of writing about how it was, how the two of them just were obviously not going to get, get along. There was eventually literally a demilitarized zone that was set up. <laughs> when you, when you, when you, if you're at the Getty and you go to the, you come down the stairs and then there's this kind of dirt, uh, path that circles and then off to the side there's this little, it's not even a fountain exactly. It's basically a urinal. <laughs> and, and, uh, the water is coming from the higher plant, uh, terrace above down and then will eventually become the 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 stream that goes down, but it's yeah. kind of uh, that kind of amphora shaped thing. Which uh, and basically the line was okay. This dirt path on this side it belongs to Meyer, and on this side it belongs to Irwin. It seemed a long way from Birmingham High and the banana slug mascot of the UC Santa Cruz campus to the hallowed halls of New York cultural writing. But a friendship with Irwin that had formulated over philosophical texts while they were both working at UCLA became the manuscript for Seeing is Forgetting. Wren had high hopes for a publishing deal. When I'd finished the manuscript, which was about 79 or so, um, I sent it out to, I think, something like eight or nine New York publishers and got rave rejections from every single one of them. All of them saying, we definitely want your next book, but not this, because there's no possible way that we could afford, that we could effectively publish a book about a California artist. <laughs> that was 1980. Kind yeah. of amazing. Uh, well, and, they, um, and, and, and so, uh, so I just sent it to the New Yorker over the transom, and I got very lucky. They accepted it, and uh, and. Uh, 
And then I eventually was published by the University of California Press, but but uh, it was not an easy book to get published. <laughs> and and so the article, I mean, your the it appeared in the New Yorker in segments or portions before the two. But I, I'd say about half the book appeared appeared as a two parter. And oddly enough, uh, in fact, it, it wasn't my first piece in the New Yorker after after Mr. Sean had. Had bought uh, that, and by the way, again, it was a California story. He he took me to lunch, uh, and I you know I was uh, terrified of famous Mr. Sean. He took me to the Algonquin, um, which really- and 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 he had his own table at the Algonquin, which was in, way in the corner, a banquette from which he could observe everything, and nobody would notice him. Especially since he was so small, that part his eyes hardly went above the table. But um, and the the waiter came over with this uh, you know fantastic uh, plank of a menu, and and he said, "Have anything?" Have, you know, he talked very quietly. "Have anything? Have anything?" And uh, I said, "Well, I'll have the plate of the day, which was you know stuffed sole or something." Mm-hmm. And he said, "I'll have the regular." And a few minutes later, the the uh, the waiter arrived uh uh with with uh these uh two you know they 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 have the bolt, the silver domes and they lift the silver domes and there was this incredibly fragrant uh you know stuffed lobster and then they lifted his dome and it was cornflakes <laughs> that was how the that's the thing began but that uh, what he was could understand about me was uh, that he was going to hire me but it was very confusing to him because uh, it appeared I came from Los Angeles, which was just something that did not figure in his world, but he could understand this. And, and he kept on digging, you know, where do you go to school, Birmingham, where do you go to college, Santa Cruz, you know. And, but he dug until he was able to determine that all of my grandparents were Viennese Jews, which, okay, that made it, okay, that, that's fine. Now he understood me. <laughs> so, right. so, but that, interestingly, I know for a long story, but I ended up covering Poland uh, during the period of Solidarity. Right. And those pieces ran before their own pieces ran. So I be I was introduced to New Yorker readers as a foreign correspondent, and then and then a few weeks, a few months later there was some of this art stuff. So, and that kind of was the early days of what at the New Yorker they used to say that I I I caromed I caromed back and forth, uh, slalomed back and forth between uh, cultural comedies and political tragedies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that was my beat. Like Sean, I too was curious about his upbringing, and knowing that his grandfather was the accomplished composer Ernest Toch, I wondered if he had been born into a household of arts and letters. Not particularly. I mean, I was born into, you know, middle-class tract housing in, in my eyes. Although, uh, I mean, there, there, interestingly, I had incredible amount of musical genes pouring into me. In that, uh, not only was my mother's father this great composer, but my, uh, my father's mother on the other side was a, uh, a, uh, professor, a very famous professor of piano. She was the head of the piano department at the Vienna Conservatory of Music, and then later in New York. And so I had, and my father, uh, was a good jazz pianist. But in any case, I had all these genes, these musical genes coming into me. However, uh, I I was absolutely hopeless musically. My grandfather wrote 
pieces for me and my brother, uh, piano pieces, and, you know, we practiced them and practiced them, and eventually we were brought before him to listen, and he, I found out years later that he said to my grandmother, the older one, me, completely hopeless. You know, the younger one maybe a little bit, but the older one is absolutely hopeless. And I was, and the reason I was hopeless, and, and I am to this day, musically, is that I cannot hear whether a note is higher or lower than the note before it, which uh, years later when I was hanging out with Oliver Sacks, he thought it was just amazing that somebody who had so much genetic privilege right. could not hear. And yet having said that, I am absolutely convinced uh I mean, there certainly wasn't any uh, fine arts background in my family. I mean, we went to museums, I suppose, with the LA County Museum and stuff. But, but, uh, uh, and the music stuff wasn't part of my life. I mean, I was into the Dodgers and and uh, kind of uh, just, you know, a kid in Van Nuys in those days. But, uh, but what I do feel like is that I have a very, very, very musical sense of writing. My grandfather wrote a book called The Shaping Forces in Music by Toch, T-O-C-H. And it's filled with musical examples, which I can't understand at all, but there's nothing in that book that I don't already understand. He has chapters about counterpoint and melody and, and form. And, um, and he talks about, he talks about music having an architectonic which is to say that is, it, it, whereas architecture is across space, music has the same sorts of things across time. So it has large vaults and then narrow alcoves and, and uh, buttresses and all those kinds of things, but across time. And that's exactly, he talks about uh, the sequential exposition of material in a formful manner across time. That, that's narrative. I mean, that's 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 music, but it's also narrative. It's interestingly not painting, although interestingly, in a way, it is the act of painting, but not the experience of a painting. You know, which is all there all at once. Uh, but it, but it's very much the experience of narrative. And I am ex- and and whenever I'm teaching, uh, all of my metaphors are when I'm in office hours are musical. I'm not aware that they are, but they, but they, you know, I say, you know, can you do that in minor instead of major? Or I'll say, the syncopation here is wrong, or you need a rest here, you know, maybe a pause, a rest, something at this point here, or, you know, this is too loud, you know, can you, can you modulate the, the, the volume through this passage here and so forth? Uh, but, and that's, that's, that comes to me completely naturally, and yet, uh, it's even weirder, by the way. When I am writing one of my pieces, I will often have this very weird experience of, as I'm coming to the end, I'll have music going on in my head, uh, and and the the beats of the last few paragraphs will be very much determined by that music, or perhaps flip side, I was getting there and the music kind of lays on top of it, but <laughs> year, hours later when I'm finished, I'll realize it's one of my grandfather's symphonies. Yeah. It's playing in my head. It's really kind of amazing. Another of Wren's particular talents is to find artists whom have had no articles written about them. One such artist is Ramiro Gomez, who happens to show at the Charlie James Gallery just a few doors down from my bookstore in Chinatown. Wren relates how he came across Gomez's work after visiting a particular Hockney portrait of the famous art collectors 
Fred and Marsha Weissman. The painting that I call a couple on the on the very edge of divorce. <laughs> you could just—it's that famous one of the yeah. uh, the totem pole, and Mrs. Wiseman's face has got the spear on it, and Mr. Wiseman is standing to the side with his fists and his, <laughs> his arms straight to the fist. And I, I love the baby. It's just fun that he's looking. But uh, so then, about forty-five minutes later, I was at Art Expo, which was taking place at that moment in in Chicago, which was their like freeze or whatever, and. uh and I turned the corner, and there was the same painting all over again. I said, "Wait a second! I just saw that painting." And then I looked more closely, and it and it was two gardeners rather than the couple. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, everything was exactly the same. And and I started talking to Charlie uh, James, the the dealer. He was going, "Oh, no, he said, yeah, the kid." He called him the kid. Kids drive me crazy. He said, "You know, uh, he's he's been he's done like uh, twelve of these botany pastiches, you know, and and." And they just go out the door the minute he does them. It's fantastic, you know. It's, it's, it's incredible. And now he suddenly tells me he's not going to do any more. I couldn't believe it. It was just the kids drive me crazy. He says he does. He made his point. He's not going to do any more. That was the <laughs> moment I realized I wanted to write about him. <laughs> a, a young artist who had hit gold and had on his own decided that he wasn't that he'd made his point and wasn't going to do it anymore. Yeah. was somebody who was going to be interesting to talk to. It turned out to be a really interesting story. In addition to a piece for an upcoming exhibition catalog at LACMA about the fine art fabrication master Jack Brogan, who incidentally has been recently profiled in Art Report Today, Wren is hard at work on a book about Ed Keenholz and his infamous tableau, Five Car Stud. If you're unfamiliar with that visceral work, I will caution you that it's a haunting portrayal of a black man being drawn and quartered by cars. It's not for the faint of heart. Wren tells us his working title and why he's fascinated by this powerful work. My next big project is going to be about um, a particular work of Ed Keenholz's. As I said, I did the oral history of Ed Keenholz back in 1975. And we were we were profound frenemies for the next twenty years until he died. We used to have a very contested relationship. He was a character, but um, I I have for years and years wanted to and never been able to get around to it, or never found the backing for it. But I wanted to do a piece called uh, Five Car Stud. Ed Keenholz at the fraught crossroads where race, class, sex, and violence keep intersecting across American history. And it'll be partly a comic profile of Keenholz and partly uh, using the rearview mirrors in that piece, in that lynching tableau. There are eight rearview mirrors, and, and looking into each of them, we find the eight moments in history that help explain when you talk about figuring out what the question is, uh, which I was taught at, at, at Santa Cruz, the question that that piece brings you to in a shuddering kind of moment is what the, why the hell are those guys doing that to that guy? Mm. Yeah, and that's a brutal piece. It's an absolutely brutal piece and it basically is, you know, although it only, it's a real slow burn, so you only, realize it gradually, but you're basically looking at a bunch of lower middle class white southerners who are 
not or basically lynching, although not exactly a a black man. And in class terms, they have every reason to be with each other. And yet the the key to understanding all of American history from the Declaration of from before the Declaration of Independence, but it's certainly part of the Declaration of Independence, uh, through Donald Trump and Trumpians, is why is it that time and again natural class allies cannot be brought together in this country? And it's because of of what's happening in that piece. And so that piece is taking place, as far as I'm concerned, at ground zero of American history. The thought of Wren filtering the whole of American history through one controversial and seminal piece of contemporary art is something I will be anxiously awaiting. I hope you've enjoyed our conversation today, and I'd encourage you to learn more about this fascinating writer and his books at lawrencewessler.com. For Art Report Today, I'm Michael Delgado. Thanks for listening.